So this session is the uh, transforming the cultural landscape. We talked earlier this morning about viewing it and then engaging it and uh, didn't exhaust those topics, of course, but now transforming it. And uh, to make this a little bit different, we thought we'd have a panel of, of uh, a, a group of, of uh, people within the culture in different areas that we could just open it up to, to a Q&A. And uh, so we have um, Joe Boot, of course, and I've, I mentioned already uh, in the earlier sessions, but he's a uh, pastor, apologist, and author, and uh, brother in Christ. And uh, he's the founder of the Ezra Institute, but he's also the founding uh, pastor of the Westminster Chapel, which I always attend in Toronto when I go. He, um, he was trained in the UK, so there's you know, the accent issue he's got going for him, but uh, he did his, uh, his master's in missionology and PhD in Whitford in uh, Christian intellectual thought. And he's, he actually worked with Ravi Zacharias Ministry for numerous years. He was their Canadian uh, director, I think, for five years. And then he's, he's got his own uh, arrangement now with the Ezra Institute. He's written a lot of books, and there's some examples at the back there. We have them at the bookstore. I highly commend them as well. They've been certain resources for me in my medical practice as I'm negotiating these challenges. I've found them very useful. He's left uh, plus seven degrees, beautiful wife and three beautiful kids to come out here to minus 23 or whatever. I'm not sure if it warmed up at all today, but uh, we're delighted to have, have Joe Boot. So he's our, he's our theologian. And we have Teresa Eng. And uh, she, Teresa Eng is a former elementary school teacher. She did for a decade. And she got into public life more as a public advocate. Sounds really weird when I stand in front of the speaker like that. It's like it's just me everywhere. But uh, <laughs> Teresa uh, has been uh, an important voice uh, found on the Internet in, in blogging with uh, Informed Albertans. And Informed Albertans has been a very, very important uh, resource for us in the, in the fray of it all to understand some of these developments. Yeah, oh, yeah, particularly in the, in the educational sphere. And so she works part-time for Parents for Choice for Education. And there are some pamphlets that she's got at the back there about that. Very, very important area. Uh, as we're, because as Joe was saying earlier, education is such one of these big areas under attack. And Teresa has been a, a real fighter here for us. Uh, and so she's advocating for, you know, children's safety in school, for the integrity of, of the uh, educational system, for the protection of the family. We were talking about that earlier. And uh, religious freedom in, in general. So thank you, Teresa, for being here. And we have uh, Daniel Moll. And Daniel Moll is a lawyer, and he's uh, in full-time practice, I believe, in Vegreville. And he uh, does mainly uh, you know, litigation, court law, and he's been in, in every layer, every layer of, of court all the way up to the Supreme Court and has had uh, numerous opportunities for, for media interview through some of those cases uh, involved in, in, in the writing sphere as well. And uh, we're just delighted to have that legal perspective on, on some of these issues, too. And the fourth, where's the fourth panelist? Oh, yeah, I'm the fourth panelist. So the fourth panelist is myself, and I'm a cardiologist at the Royal Alexander Hospital, and I, uh, I'm involved in, just in the fray of it all, right, right in the, in the, in the uh, uh, seeing patients that come in at that very busy tertiary care hospital and trying to live out the Christian faith in that environment. And we have a moderator for this event, uh, and we have... Blaine Aiken, who's a colleague of mine, Dr. Aiken, and he's, he's an anesthesia doctor at the Mazdakowski Heart Center, the bad hospital. I'm at the good hospital, <laughs> just to kind of clarify. No, I'm just kidding. So we work, we work hand in hand, the Mazdakowski uh, and, the, and the Alex. We have all the patients and they have the surgeons. 
and so it's a nice marriage. But uh, uh, so, so Blaine, actually, though, before medical school, did, did theological training, was a pastor, so he brings all of that into his, into his medical practice. And he, he and his wife, Amanda, have been very, very involved in the uh, young, adult, young adult ministry in town for many years, and we're just delighted to have, the, have you here, Blaine. Thank you. I'll pass this over to you. All right, so we're going to get this session started. It's a Q&A session from start to finish. Uh, I've got a lot of questions that I could be asking up here, but I really want to bring uh, your questions to this panel. Does anyone have a question to start? Otherwise, I'll start. Right here, sir. Okay, so if I could summarize your question for everyone in case you can't hear at the back. Uh, this gentleman is asking about what are the solutions from the Christian community with regards to racism, any form of racism, is that right? Yeah. Within the Canadian context, i.e. a lot of the First Nations people is, I think, what you're referring to. All right. Uh, who wants to address this on the panel first? Can I speak to Daniel first? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's important, I think, where the gospel, in, in my experience, speaks to the problem of racism is, is the fact of our, of our common humanity, right, that we share the image of our creator that we all have dignity by that for that reason right so every every member of every race shares that basic and that's the message that i think the christian community can has to offer is that uh, you know oh speak up okay oh sure yeah all right i think that's the message is that is that you reflect the image of, of the creator we all do in the same way we all carry dignity we all carry rights because that dignity inheres and so our rights in here now as a matter of law racism or the perceived problem of racism has been used and can be used as a pretext for subversion of of uh, understandings of law in other words to use law as an instrument of raw power for the purpose of social engineering um, whereas I think the proper conception that law offers to the problem of racism is that we are all equal under the law. We're all created in the image of God. Um, any, any violation of the dignity of the human person is, is a wrong, a legal wrong. And I think if we recognize that, we'll be on the path to reconciliation. Anybody else on the panel want to say anything? I could just add something really quickly to that. That was excellent. I, I completely agree with what's said there. I think it's important to recognize that racism is a humanistic concept. Because in scripture, there's only one race, the human race. And Paul says in Acts 17, when he's going to speak to the Greeks, God has made from one blood all men. And uh, is actually with, uh, especially with um, Darwinism, and then there were uh, movements within Europe that were humanistic in their orientation, um, that uh, built a doctrine of European supremacy. But Darwinism in particular especially with Darwin's descent of man, wanted to suggest that there are multiple origins or more than one origin for man. And therefore, the idea that one line of this development of the human person might be superior to the other. And then, of course, you had the mixture of spensorial philosophy and Darwinian ideas in Nazi Germany, which gave you the idea of a, of a, of a master race. It's true that, that there have been Christians in the past who have been complicit in oppression, and the perpetration of injustice. For example, the idea that the state has the right to take people's children away from them 
and destroy and undermine the family, which is, is in, in part what happened uh, with some of the, um, uh, the, the indigenous schooling issue, right? And, so the, the, and I know that's a very sore point. There's no way that Christians from a biblical perspective can support that because we believe in, we should believe in the sphere sovereignty of the family. Just as we want to have the right to home educate our children now, so there's a hypocrisy in the modern government, though, in how it wants to remove educational liberty now, and yet it will castigate Christians for for what it did in the past or for what previous governments did. So I think we have to be, I I think this is a critical point, that the, the danger is that racism, which is a humanistic concept, becomes used as a tool for social engineering. Um, and, and actually, it's Christian people who should be concerned about oppression and injustice and so forth. And very often, you find that those who allegedly are massively concerned about racism and are running around at feminist marches wearing the hijab don't actually uh, appreciate the kind of oppression that women are going through, for example, in the Islamic context. So there's a double standard at work sociologically and culturally at the moment. And I think we can speak to, to we're healing the wounds of this by talking about the meaning of the gospel. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't serve well uh, these other cultural environments by pretending that we think that other religious ideas, like animistic religious ideas, will form a culture that is as healthy and strong and can promote human flourishing in the way that the Lordship of Jesus Christ kept. So uh, I think it's important just to get involved, just love these people, you know. So I flip pancakes once a month at St. Faith's downtown uh, for, for, the, uh, for the, the homeless. And they're mainly the, from the Aboriginal group, you know. And so just get in there. Nothing's going to stop us from doing that, you know. Let me, uh, more questions, by the way. You've got to put up your hand so that I can select who's next. I'm going to get you next, sir. But I want to jump in with Teresa here because we brought up this whole idea of education, Okay. And so, uh, Teresa, you already heard, was uh, a high, or sorry, elementary school teacher for, for a number of years. Teresa, what do you think are the major uh, challenges that we're facing in our education system from a Christian perspective today? Okay, so uh, I'm going cou- to... In a couple of minutes, because <laughs> there's a lot of questions. Well, get ready. No, just kidding. Um, so I'm going to start with a quote by Lenin to answer that question, who said, um, give me a generation of youth and I'll transform the whole world. Because in this whole discussion about culture, I think it's very vital to understand the key role that education plays in the transformation of culture. You have a captive, impressionable, vulnerable audience of children who physiologically haven't even developed the cognitive capacity to be able to filter out ideas and and, and really philosophically examine them. Um, And you present information to them. And so our education system... Uh, we, I don't think that people fully grasp how important it is to be very vigilant with guarding our education system um, away from any sort of manipulation. Because if, if somebody is intent on culture change, where do you go? You go to hijacking a culture's education system. And the younger, the better. Right When you can infiltrate to the elementary grades, that's where you want the biggest impact, right? Because they're the ones, I was an elementary school teacher, and they just think everything the teacher says is true. 
Um, and I tell people, I could, I could teach that the sky is green. And the kids at first might be like, no, Mrs. Singh, the sky is blue. But you know what? If I keep telling those kids the sky is green and I test them on it, and we say, well, you failed the test because the sky is not blue, it's green, and you keep harping on that, I guarantee you by the, it'll only take a week or two and those kids will be saying the sky is green because it's green, right? And so I think it's extremely important, and I won't go into <laughs> any more detail because of time. Maybe you can ask more questions of me later in terms of particulars. Um, but, but a big one right now is, is this idea of manipulating the idea of sexuality and gender. So we literally have a resource um, published by the Teachers Association in schools today that's saying, um, that actually has a test question for Biology 30 of all things, that the only correct answer is that gender is subjective, exists on a spectrum of limitless possibility, and, and, and is completely independent of biology. So um, how did this happen? Right, is because we are not being vigilant in guarding um, who's controlling uh, the helm of our education system. So education so important, and I really want to uh, people to understand the, the critical role it plays. So, okay, I got a gentleman here that I'll go to first. So if we really want to transform and begin to transform our culture, it means getting involved with your school boards, right? Getting involved with your schools as parents uh, and, and teachers, right? and his community members. This is uh, Sir here. What would be some advice from our panel on the um, inherent assumption that Christianity is uh, colonialism? Okay, so uh, big question. Uh, can I give it to Joe first? <laughs> yeah. Okay, just Joe. So really we're, we're talking here about part of the the cultural narrative that's been created about Christianity. Just one second. Did everyone hear the question? No, so we're going to have to repeat the so question. So the question was, you know, we hear a lot about Christianity being colonialism and in the context of uh, trying to share the gospel and uh, uh, deal with things like reconciliation, how do we, how do we engage with the charge that uh, Christianity just serves, is, is, is in service to those who are in power? Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, modern governments are not concerned about colonialism. They are only concerned with what kind of colonialism is taking place. So a President Obama will think nothing of cutting off aid to certain developing world countries if they do not buy in to the progressive agenda on human sexuality. So third world countries are being manipulated, browbeaten, threatened, and intimidated all of the time. Uh, some of the African nations, for example, uh, just a couple of years ago in terms of uh, laws that they were introducing with regards to sexual practice, um, they were being threatened by the West, that all aid and support would be cut off. So it's interesting that actually the imposition of values is not what the colonial narrative is concerned with. The issue is the idea that uh, Christian values might be inculcated. So we're happy to send millions and millions and millions of dollars around the world to fund abortions in the third world because we think we need to decrease the surplus population. Uh, and that's the attitude that we have. The problem uh, that they see, though, is that Christian mission, well, that's cultural genocide. That's colonialism. So I think the 
what we have to recognize is there's a, a narrative, a cultural narrative has been started. In the last session, I mentioned the cultural Marxists. And the narrative is, is that Christianity, and in particular the white male Christian middle-class man, is the source of all oppression and evil in the world. He is the oppressor. And in Michel Foucault even developed this wheel of oppression where in the center of the wheel of oppression was the Christian man, in particular the white Christian man, and on the exterior, the oppressed, was everybody else from women to aboriginals to blacks to homosexuals. These are all the oppressed groups. So it's impossible in this doctrine for, for anybody than a white person to be racist. Nobody else can actually be racist because you are guilty by virtue of being born into uh, what is perceived to be an oppressor class. So this is the, when, you, when you have the idea of social justice, what comes with that is the idea of social guilt. So it doesn't matter how loving I might be to my neighbor, or let's take me, for example, the fact that actually I've got Indian blood in my veins, that one of my brothers is married to a Pakistani woman, that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then none of that matters. You are guilty by virtue of being a Christian, by being male, and by being broadly white-looking-ish sort of kind of a thing. Right? Now, that's the, that's the narrative. Now, we're not, of course, concerned to deny, and we shouldn't be concerned to deny, that um, European powers did colonize various parts of the world, and their, the fruit of that colonization was a very mixed result. Some very beneficial results, I would hasten to add, and I think many in India would say the largest democracy in the world today, many positive results, Lots of negative stuff, but actually the East India Company was concerned to try and keep missionaries out of India. They wanted to keep missionaries. Why did they want missionaries out of India? Because when you spread the gospel and people learn that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, they're not as ready to tolerate abuses of power and so on. So actually William Wilberforce, who was at the center of the abolition of the slave trade, was also at the center of getting missionaries access to India. So we have to separate European political colonization and expansionism from genuine Christianity in the minds of people. I also think that we need to have a slightly more balanced uh, intellectual survey, historical survey, of the fruits of uh, colonization. The fact is the whole history of the world is a history of colonization. I mean, you know, Britain, we're not trying to get back at the Scandinavians for the fact that the Vikings came and, you know, stole our, our land. Uh, how far back do you go in, in sort of making reparations for this so-called uh, uh, oppression? So we're not going to, as Christians, going to try and justify abuses. We should never do that. Right. But we need to be careful to point up the hypocrisy of the modern West it's very happy to impose its ideas and to do so with legal sanction. What it doesn't want, though, is Christian values. Yeah. So always, there is a, it's like I was saying in the second session, there is a religious foundation to everything that's taking place. And actually, right now, the most oppressed, the most persecuted group of people in the world are Christians around the world. So actually, the people who are actually being oppressed in the world today, and it's overlooked by Western governments, for the most part, are Christians who are suffering. Uh, whether they be black, South Asian, South American, Korean, Chinese, 
it's Christian people who are actually suffering. And actually, Christians do not hold the levers of power in the West. Right. So, uh, and in fact, you know, I've got to stop. But um, I think the, we're in, in, the, in, in the universities in North America right now, it's actually Asian people, Chinese, for example, who are overtaking the white family in educational accomplishment and attainment because the Asian family has not collapsed in the same way that the Western family have. And now you've got affirmative action going on in our top universities in North America to stop Asians getting the, right. the, the, the places, to stop them getting into the universities, to dish them out elsewhere. So right. this is a very complex picture, and we have to disassociate the gospel yeah. from this politicization of race. Yeah, that's a huge question. We're not going to solve it completely. Teresa, you're going to have something to say, and then i got two questions coming, one here and one here. I just wanted to take that question, uh, actually the last two questions, and kind of back up a step, which I think is really important, um, to question where these kind of premises are coming from. And in my role um, as a very public advocate in education, um, one of the things that has been very become very obvious to me is the, the media and the role that it plays in shaping uh, public consciousness. And so you have to understand that that media is not, the, the way that stories are written, the way that stories come out, why you hear about one story every single day for a week and you don't hear about any other story that you happen to find on the internet through some other source and you're like, why isn't that covered at all? Um, it's very intentional, it's very deliberate. Um, they say that the, the, the biggest power of the press is the power to ignore. And so there's a reason, as Dr. Boot said, that you don't hear about Christians um, being the most persecuted, discriminated against group of people in the world. And that's because it doesn't fit the cultural narrative that's, that's trying to be pushed here. And it's very important as Christians to be cognizant of the, just like you, you think about the food that you consume, you need to think about the media that you're consuming, where you're getting your information from and who that's owned by and what their bias and skew is. And the bulk of our media, the mainstream media, are owned by people who are extremely hostile to the Christian worldview and have a very vested interest in deliberately um, amplifying certain news stories and suppressing others. And I'll give you a key example um, that happened in the, in the realm of education in Alberta. Um, I, uh, in March of last year, um, there's a Gay Straight Alliance Network website and um, I uncovered a, uh, these that, that this, and it's government recommended, funded by taxpayer dollars, and it led to kindergarten to grade 12 children under the guise of support saying that this website is here to help you kids. And you'd click on the links and they led to incredibly sexually graphic material. Um, stuff that I can't unsee for my entire life. Um, videos of people engaging in sexual acts, advice to pay for porn and visit group masturbation sites. This was very inappropriate material. Um, I've been in the media before, I, I know the drill, so before I've put out media releases, and then you get all dressed up and ready to go, and, and um, so I put that, this release was actually put out to 200 media contacts, locally, uh, provincially, and nationally, and you know what I got? Silence. Um, the, there was one contact in the CBC, because she had covered that, the document I was referencing in my other, uh, uh, when I, when I stood up here before and talked about that bio 30 test question, that document she had covered before. And so she actually covered this story, um, but then actually had to edit it 
<laughs> to change the content uh, because of pressure. Um, and so you need to understand that the forces at work shaping the public consciousness at large in Canada um, is very um, uh, manipulated in a, in a very particular way, that you are exposed to certain information and not exposed to other, uh, other information unless um, you intentionally seek it out for, from from different sources. And so I just caution everybody based on, on the last two questions and, and, and kind of jumping off of what Dr. Boot said to be very cognizant about what premise we're accepting as true um, when presented in the media, we really have to question critically, is, is, the, is the underlying premise true or do we have to dig a little deeper? Is this more complex issue than is being simplistically represented to us? So anyway, just a, an extra thought. Thank, thanks for sharing that, Teresa. I had a question, uh, this young lady here and then there's a young gentleman over there. So uh, she's a mother, she has a, a grade nine-year-old son and she wants to know how can she help her son uh, think critically. Is that the gist of your question? And, and navigate the education system? Ooh, that's a big question, but it's, uh, let's give it a start, you guys. Should we start with our teacher? Sure, I'll start with that. Okay, so there's been, a, 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 for lack of a better word, a hijacking of our education system, which again, piggybacking off the last question, most people have no clue has even happened um, because the media is not telling you about it. Um, which is why I work with Parents for Choice in Education as an organization, because one of our biggest jobs is, is, is breaking through the noise of the media to present to people the facts of what are actually happening. Um, and what is happening in our education system is that we've legitimized um, through, through law and through the different resources that are coming through the system, we've legitimized um, this, this idea that ideology trumps everything else. And so there's actually parts in, in, in the Guide to Education that talk about how controversial sensitive issues on which there's no public consensus should be dealt in a, sens with, in a sensitive way and in, in sensitivity to a student's um, family values and all of this, and it sounds really good on paper, but it's not being followed at all. Um, so we have situations where um, children are, are being presented as fact in the classroom, tested on it, for example, in sexuality and gender, that um, the, the one resource says that a binary understanding of gender is harmful, misleading, and often wrong. And all of the lessons in that uh, teacher, uh, published by our Alberta Teachers Association, and the entire premise of the doc, all the lesson plans in that document are based on that premise that any binary understanding, I mean, it's not even to be entertained um, as, a, as an option. So this is deeply troubling to people in the Christian community because it means that if you are a student in those classrooms, you are, you're not even acknowledged. Your, your beliefs are, are not valid, right? Um, and that's wrong. And that's why I continue to do what I do to confront like the Alberta Teachers Association in the media saying you, this is a hypocritical double standard, right? Um, you're telling one group that they get to live their authentic selves. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're suppressing and bullying and intimidating uh, parents and students who believe anything other than the narrative you're trying to push into our school system. What can you do? Um, what can you do is number one, you have to be informed. And I can't do that for you. You need 
to do that for yourself. The number one thing is, I mean, go to Parents for Choice in Education. We have pamphlets at the back. Go on our website. Get the facts of what's actually happening in our education system and just how far it's gone in a very short amount of time. And the next thing is to get engaged. Um, we have so many tools, um, so many different ways you can engage. Uh, we even have under the Take Action tab, we just added a few days ago about p uh, political opportunities um, that you can use your voice and your vote to get out there and to do something about it. So the first step is being informed about what's happened um, and how this has infiltrated our school system. The second step is getting engaged and, and, and you can go to our website for a ton of, of different ideas. But, but understand inaction is an action. Yeah. And by not speaking up and by not taking action, by not empowering and equipping yourself with the information of what's happening, you are allowing this to progress even further. And, and what's at stake is our children yeah. and what our children represent is the future of our culture. And so this is not to be taken lightly. No, not at all. So uh, I'm going to, yeah, very good. Teresa is very passionate about this uh, because she's so well informed and has, is very much aware of what's changed in our education system and in our culture. And uh, the vast majority of people aren't. And so I'm going to ask Ted to comment a little bit on this whole issue of transgenderism and, and uh, kind of what's happened in our school system from a medical point of view. Yeah, so uh, two, two points, though. I'm a father of three, three boys, and so the, the critical thing is to have what we would call in medicine feet under the table time, feet under the table time with your children. So have time with your kids, have a relationship with your kids and talk about these things. And within a relationship, you can find out what's going on at school. This is a critical thing. We have dinner instead of violin lessons and soccer. Have dinner with your family and actually talk about these things and bring in the gospel message to speak to these things so they can, they can understand it in, in, in light of the of biblical truth. Uh, from a medical standpoint, I got into trouble here a couple of years ago. Uh, Blaine and I both did. Didn't we both. We, we wrote a, a paper to the uh, Minister of Education with our, our medical concerns, uh, referencing it, and uh, that wasn't popular. And we actually had, had quite a bit of heat. We're still feeling a little bit at the university, and we were threatened with having our positions removed. And so it's very, very important to them. Is, is that important? You know? But the, uh, I would just, it's a very complex topic. But there's been, it's been very well-reviewed, it's online, it's free, and uh, it's, it's called The New Atlantis, The New Atlantis, and it's two authors, uh, Lawrence Mayer, Lawrence Mayer, and Paul McHugh. And just remember Mayer, if you like, or McHugh, but uh, it's, uh, it's online, and there are physicians from Harvard with specialty in this area. I'm a cardiologist, it's not my specialty. But, you know, I read critically uh, medical literature, and so does Dr. Aiken here, and so we, we could understand what's going on here. This is crazy. But they went through things in detail, and so they've, they've discussed uh, in detail in lay terminology so you can, you can access it and understand it, the, uh, the sexual orientation issues, gender uh, identity issues, and the whole mental health concerns that are, that are involved in this. And, and it's a very, very important area, and you can download it and have it and read it and circulate it, and it's a very, very important document. It was a coup that it came out. They, they got major heat for this, but uh, there it is. So the New Atlantis, it came out in August 2016, a tremendous resource for us to be, to be aware of, a very balanced perspective on this very complex area. And I just l lastly say at the end, I, a lot of my patients suffer from this kind of trouble, and, and my heart breaks for them. And so as a Christian... 
that, that goes to the side, and, and I'm just meeting them in, in their needs. And they, they have high risk. They're very high-risk patients uh, that I have, and I, I'm 100% in support of not what they're doing, but in them as people and trying to help them go, go get through this stuff. So we have to have a real heart for them as well. It's not us against them. It's the broken, sinful world. Sexuality is one of the major sins. We're, we're all in it too, and we have to be able to meet these people in, in their brokenness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to go to this gentleman over here, but just to follow up and summarize, I think what the panel is saying, I really believe the time has come that in our Christian churches around you know, our communities, we need to start telling people to shut the TV off and start informing yourself about the things that, are, that really matter. All these series and nonsense that are on the TV day in and day out, it's not helping us. It's just indoctrinating us with all the garbage in the world. So there's a whole bunch more important battlefronts. And for those of you who are here that want to be engaged, please put your name on. We want to talk to you at the end. There's so much we need to do. There's so much we need to do. Education system, you know, dealing with the oppressed, you know, those who, who, don't, who need help and can't get it. It just goes on and on. This gentleman's been waiting patiently. Hi. Um, so in Alberta, we have a lot of faith-based institutions that are publicly funded, so Catholic schools and Catholic hospitals that take a lot of faith-based and receiving public funds. And I, I was hoping that you could articulate some defense of this model, like whether there's some way to defend institutions that, that do hold out faith-based positions but receive public funding because they're often attacked for being discriminatory but using you know, public funds. Daniel. Um, in Alberta, there's a, a bit of a hybrid situation because uh, the constitution of the province um, Part of, and also the federal constitution involved promises to Quebec and to the Catholic Church that uh, Catholics would have a privileged status, especially in education. And so um, that's been traditionally why the provincial government, that's traditionally why the provincial government has funded um, Catholic education. Now, um, what, I, what, I want to, what I want to say is, uh, is the way to understand this is to is to see religious freedom as uh, not just one of a number of rights that are up for discussion, but as the predicate right, as the constitutive right of, of a liberal state. So if, um, so let me put it this way, um, religious freedom is central to political liberty, that is to the liberal nature of a liberal democracy, because it defines a sphere of existence that does not belong to the state, okay? So when, when the state uh, pretends to ownership of the private sphere of, of our conscience, right? Of, and that includes um, pretending that religious freedom is, is a matter for negotiation or is something that the state can legitimately legislate away in any context. When any government that pretends to do that is a government that is not respecting its limits, right? And uh, if, we, if we want to live in a free society, then we need a government that knows and agrees to live within its proper limits. So, um, right, liberal law requires limited government. Um, we have to see the law, uh, the, the purpose of our law, as a bridle on the exercise of raw power uh, rather than as the instrument of it, right? So that's the traditional conception of law in the West that goes back to, um, in, at least in the British tradition, that goes back to the 1200s, even before that. Of course, um, you're not surprised to hear that's informed by 
the Christian philosophers and uh, Christianity itself. So that's my comment on religious freedom. Um, I just want to make a point that um, are you a member of the public? Do your public tax dollars go to the public purse? Should you not as a member of the public deserve some sort of public provision of schooling for your children, right? So there's this false um, idea in our culture that somehow secular, secular, humanistic, public education is somehow more legitimate than a faith-based education. But you sitting in this room are likely people of Christian faith who are public and who are equally as legitimate to pass on your values to your children as some Joe Schmo off the street who may not be a Christian and his kids attend public schools. So why is it that we have this double standard that somehow says that the secular faith belief system is more legitimate for your public dollars as a Christian to fund when it's teaching children that um, gender, for example, is completely fluid, that you can change every day, whether you're a boy or a girl or neither, or a limitless amount of possibilities, you're funding that, um, even though that's completely antithetical to your belief system and the values you want to uh, pass on to your children. So I think we need to attack that argument at its core and understand that in a free democratic society, you and your beliefs and the freedom to pass on your beliefs to your children is as legitimate as somebody else from a secular perspective. And Christians have bought into this idea that somehow they're less legitimate. And that needs to stop because it's disempowering them and you're losing your kids. So you're losing your kids to the secular public school that's teaching your children that your faith values are wrong and have no place in the public sphere. Meanwhile, don't, don't presume to think that you can send your child for six and a half hours, five days a week to a school system that says that you're wrong and have your children come out at the end of 12 years of that and somehow think that you're right. Um, so, so I think that Christians need to reclaim the fact that they are legitimately part of the public sphere and they need to fight for that a little bit more loudly than they are now um, to say, no, we are part of the public and we deserve to, um, to also have that freedom to pass on our values um, to our children. Yeah, so that's how I would answer it. Yeah. I'm going to have Joe make a comment about that first. Just, v- just very quickly, on that, I'm going to say something slightly more controversial, um, <laughs> which is the nature of totalitarianism is, to, is, is the idea of part-to-whole relationship within uh, the public space so that the state regards the family, the church, education as parts of the whole. What um, our legal friend here, what's your name again? Daniel, sorry, Daniel, was actually pointing out, which is critically important, is that uh, if there is, what the, the birth of the church in the West, what it did, the first thing it did was broke totalitarianism by the establishment of a sphere that was not, and this is what the early church died for when they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, the establishment of a sphere of life that was not part of the state. Human beings not regarded as political animals. So the parts-to-whole attitude of the West increasingly is, a t- is totalitarian. And 
Remember this about the nature of the state. The nature of the state, and we don't ask these questions enough, what is the character of the state as uh, a sphere, as an institution? It has a legitimate place in God's purposes, but the nature of it is to be coercive. That's the nature of the state. The state must, by its nature, it doesn't advise you to keep the speed limit, right? I mean, it does, but when you get, when it see the digital sign flashing up, slow down, wear your seatbelt, all that. But it, it's not advice. It brings with it legal sanction, right? It brings with it force. The state has the power of the sword. Scripture gives it the power of the sword. So wherever you bring the state, whatever you bring it into, you bring it into medicine. If you bring it into education, you bring the element of coercion with it, with it. So it wasn't until the end of the 19th century that the state got involved in education at all. Now, I appreciate this, this uh, very important point that Teresa has made about public purse and everything else. But since when is it the state's responsibility to educate anybody? That's a parental responsibility. Now, we might delegate that to certain institutions, but it's a parent. Now, the church, the Christian church, used to fund education. That's how universal education began in Europe, in Britain. Uh, the church funded it. Church schools. Yeah, there was a church building and then there was a schoolhouse. Right? Now, we as Christians surrendered. And in fact, it was, it was Christians, in, for example, in Ontario, like Egerton Ryerson, a Methodist minister, who was looking at European models of education and state education and thought, well, this is an opportunity to have a broadly Christian education for everyone. But then, do you know what we started to do in Canada? We started to coerce parents to send their children to school at a certain point, at a certain age. No, you can't do that apprenticeship. No, you can't work in your father's business. No, you can't do this, that, and the other. So the element of coercion comes with it. And he who pays the piper calls the tune. So if the state is funding it, then you get the kind of pressure that you're talking about. So one of the things you can do, which we've done in Toronto... I'm not saying it's the, the answer for everyone. Start a Christian institution. We started Westminster Classical Christian Academy. We don't take a single state dollar. I know you're almost forced to take state dollars, aren't you, out here? I mean, this is part. I mean, talk about parts to hold. To, you have to take the state's dollars so that they can control it, so they can control you, right? Well, at least in Ontario, we can start our own education. And do you know what? The non-Christians want to send their kids to our school now. Because the standards of education that we're producing, it's not an indoctrination center. It's learning critical tools. So we need to think that through, and we need to think through the role of the state in education. Daniel. I have to take this just one step further, and Joe started his answer by uh, describing the totalitarian nature of a government that doesn't respect its limits. I want to say that the implication for that is, is, uh, is central here to what we're discussing because it affects how we understand the value of human life. And in, in a state, in a liberal state that it properly admits of its limits and stays within the public sphere, the, the purpose of law, the legitimacy of the state, derives from um, law in service of the dignity of the human person, law in service of the subjects of the state. In a totalitarian state where law does not, pardon me, where the government refuses to admit of its limits, then human life has value only insofar as it is useful 
to the purposes of the state or even worse to the purposes of those who have captured the levers of power in the state and so th this is an issue that I mean, we can we we can chuckle we can scoff at the the prospect of totalitarianism in Canada and we're not at that point but there is an impulse in certain um, in certain cultural sectors and certainly we we see it we've seen it recently in in politics there's an impulse to um, steamrolling some of these central rights and uh, and refusing to recognize the proper limits of government and uh, the implication for the dignity of the human person and for uh, and of course as that relates to life issues is, is very significant okay I'm gonna have to take another question from the crowd here sorry a young lady here okay so the question is uh, Daniel's gonna take this first I guess the question is uh, um, when we see re religious persecution around the world, is there value with, uh, with for our community, the Christian community, uh, joining with other religions and trying to protect those rights? I think that's the gist of it, isn't it? Daniel, go ahead. Sure, yeah. I, I would just say, as a matter of law, um, Canada is a signatory to the, the uh, UN Declaration on Human Rights, which is a 20th century uh, creature, but, it, I mean, it, it was central to the founding of the United Nations, and it came out of the experiences of the 20th century with totalitarianism, with a refusal to recognize um, religious freedom and respect it. So uh, there's engagement that, that should happen on the governmental level, and there is an international law framework uh, to, to facilitate that. And then also I think there's engagement to happen on the NGO level and, uh, and church organizations, and I think my other panelists can speak to that better. Yeah, I would say you, you raise a very important question, and I should stand up, and I, and I do think that it's important that we um, look out for minority uh, rights when people are being, like in Burma, for example, as you mentioned, that when, when people are struggling and being persecuted and are not being granted their liberties and freedoms. At the same time, we have to recognize a fundamental reality that Christians are, con are, are confronting right now, which is that no government, if it's going to survive, no form of human government can allow an absolute religious freedom, right? Any state, any government will always uphold a certain vision of orthodoxy. So what's happening right now is Christians are finding themselves on the receiving end of the heresy tribunals of the modern progressive uh, ideologues because the orthodoxy of the modern Western state is now coming into conflict with Christian, uh, Christian ideas of the human person, of the human family, and so on. Now, um, no, no government would give an absolute religious freedom. For example, would religious freedom in Britain mean that we have to tolerate a parallel legal system of Sharia law, for example? Inherent in the very religion of Islam, for the most part, is the Sharia. They're not two separate things. It's not Islam and Sharia. Islam is Sharia. So um, are we, can we, in a civilization, have two ultimate sources of law? Can you have two ultimate sources of sovereignty running parallel? Now, the answer is you can't. You, you simply cannot have two ultimate sources of sovereignty. So the question becomes, what kind of social order guarantees maximal freedom for, as, for, for people within the rule of law, right? And that law, law is going to be shaped by a vision of sovereignty and a particular conception of law, a law idea. 
Islam has its law idea, Hinduism has its law idea, Christianity, atheism, uh, Marxism has its law idea. Uh, and actually, when you look at the world and you look at history, you see that maximal freedom has been granted under the law, equality before the law, in Christian contexts, in Christian nations. That's why people have flocked here from all around the world. They came to the West because of freedom and the rule of law. So... Um, in protecting religious minority rights, which we should, we must not then draw an equivalence between religious ideas because ideas have consequences. They shape a certain type of civilization. Most of you ladies here, I can assure you, would want to live here rather than in Saudi Arabia right now. That's a religious issue, and you cannot have the notion of two ultimate sources of sovereignty. So when we defend religious liberty... That is not in some sort of absolute sense. I mean, if you've got a religion, for example, that's interested in certain forms of demonology, for example, or interested in human sacrifice, you can't have an absolute notion of, well, that's their religious practice, that's their, you know, or genital mutilation, which is going on in Britain right now in certain communities. We can't just say, oh, well, that's their religious tradition, that's their religious culture, we must allow that. We're not obligated to allow that. So it does come down to what is the ultimate ground of law. And for the Christian, that has to be in Christ Jesus. Okay, I had another question here for this gentleman, and then I'll come over here to you. Sorry. You first, and then... Okay, you first, sorry. I'm trying to... You got your question ready? Go ahead. So the question is, how do we ensure that we keep the message of the gospel the same in spite of the fact that it's in a culture which is trying to distort it? Okay. But I think one of the important things really quickly is to say that um, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is unity in diversity. So uh, Christianity never produces or shouldn't produce um, a monistic, uh, monadic, monotonous culture that stamps out diversity. So within um, uh, the Christian world... So, uh, with, as, as, as Christianity comes to expression at different times and among different people groups, um, there will be a diversity of expression in many of those uh, uh, contexts. So the, 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 old notion, the old idea of, you know, um, well, I'm you know, guilty, you know, make everywhere England, uh, uh, is not a Christian concept. Um, a Christian concept is that the faith, our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because must come to cultural expression in the context of where we are. Um, and as I mentioned in the previous session, I don't know whether you were there, that every people, every culture around the world retains some element of the norms and laws that God established for creation. Um, and so we're not looking at some sort of imperialistic notion that one particular expression of what that looks like, must, as though everybody's got to dress the same and the worship's got to sound the same and the, uh, 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 the, the, the food we eat's got to look the same and that there is some kind of um, uh, monotonous lack of diversity. In fact, it, the opposite is the case. There's, there's a big contrast between Christianity and Islam because Islam has a strong tendency to want to stamp out diversity. Um, whereas uh, the, the gospel wants to release uh, that diversity. Now, we do need to make sure, though, that if there is the, the anti-Christian cultural religious forces and motives 
are not then radically shaping us. So, for example, in uh, where one of my um, fellow pastors works, church planting down in the Caribbean, you've got, because of indigenous voodoo and all kinds of um, uh, magic arts there, you've got a blending of um, local animism and folk religion and so forth with Christianity. We've, see, we've seen that in numerous contexts. So we do have to make sure that as we are engaging culturally uh, and thinking about the implications of the gospel, that scripture is our standard. The word of God is our standard, not Western culture, South American culture, um, uh, uh, North African culture. The scripture is the norm, and every culture needs to be normed by scripture. Right, and that'll bring diversity in different cultures. You have a question. So the question, the question is, many of us probably in this room have heard of Jordan Peterson. He's a psychologist, uh, clinical psychologist uh, in uh, Toronto, the University of Toronto. Came under a lot of heat for his uh, unwillingness, uh, he said, to, uh, to call someone by some, uh, you know, yeah, compelled, sp- he called it compelled speech, which is what, what it would be, uh, like Z or Zer, just uh, yeah, made up pronouns that don't really exist in the English language. So does anyone want to comment on that? And then we'll have one more gentleman here. We're rapidly running out of time, and we'll wrap up here in about six minutes. So go ahead. Um, just very briefly, and in saying this, I'm not endorsing everything Dr. Peterson has said. I, don't, I haven't read everything Dr. Peterson has said, but um, he is an example, I would say, of the importance of going on record. Um, even if everybody else disagrees with you, if, if you're convinced this is true, then say it. You know? And there's, an important, there's a very important uh, uh, role for that, I mean, so that not everybody will be, will be able... To, they won't be able to say in the future not ev- that everybody agreed, right? That everybody went along. When somebody like that goes on record, you can do it too. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of, of him as well. Although I did, would say in the clinical scenario, uh, if you want to be called Zur, I'm all over that. I've got no problem with that. Whatever you want to be called, I'm there. That's easy. What I, what I need is a relationship. I need that relationship. We need relationships with these people. So if we're going to be, like, on a relational level, stonewall, say, no, I can, I can only use these particular words, otherwise we can't have any relationship, we're going to lose that opportunity, this incredible gospel opportunity. Don't lose it. It's amazing. I mean, these are broken people. They want to be called Zer. They don't even know if they're male or female. Come on. We, we can speak into that. We can speak truth into that. They need to hear Jesus into that. We can do that. So please don't forget that part. Wow. <laughs> we still we, I think somebody leaned on the lights back there guys there we go oh I thought I thought well that was it that's it for that one but uh, you got can just, just 30 seconds because there's one more question okay. and we got to wrap it up okay can I take two minutes because no. I think it's <laughs> one minute one minute Okay, so I was just going to going on the Jordan Peterson question. I think something that's very important to understand that he's tapped into is this element of fear. Um, Jordan Peterson has done something very bold in articulating something that most people are afraid to say out loud. And um, I, I just what you said too about using your voice, 
um, you need to use your voice or you'll lose your voice. And that window of even being able to have conversations without being shut down before the conversation even starts, that window is closing very quickly. And I think the allure of what Jordan Peterson has, has tapped into, what he's done, is he's kind of just really exploded that window, right? That people can have those conversations. And um, when it comes to... I think oftentimes people uh, from the Christian community are afraid um, to speak their beliefs of fear of offending somebody. But I think we need to understand that by not giving voice to your beliefs, you're actually also denying people the opportunity to explore those ideas for themselves. And, and that really fundamentally um, communicates a, a lack of... Um, belief in the value that you put on it for yourself. Because if we really believe something is valuable, we will want to share it. We won't be afraid of sharing it. So we need to be convinced as Christians that we have something of value to offer and not be afraid to give people the opportunity to think about those um, ideas and to um, be able to articulate them and put them out into the public sphere rather than you know huddling behind um, being afraid to say it. Yeah, I appreciate that. We need courageous uh, Christians, don't we? Courageous Christians willing to say what we believe and, and, uh, and why. I'm going to have one last question, but before you state it, sir, just to let everybody know, could you please, if anything what we've talked about here has resonated with you, please sign up back there for the Ezra Institute of Contemporary Christianity uh, Jubilee magazine. Quest for Life is the, the program actually that's uh, sponsored this track. We do a, a um, conference once a year for young adults primarily. We're probably going to broaden that out. And if what we're doing here is what you'd like to be involved with, please sign up. We've come underneath the umbrella of the Ezra Institute of Contemporary Christianity, and we feel that uh, we need to be more vocal, we need to be more engaged, and we need to be transforming our culture. Isn't that what we're, we're all about? Isn't that what Jesus asked us to do? The last question, and then we're going to wrap things up. Remember to sign up before you leave. And on so many issues. You know, Ted travels around the province speaking directly about euthanasia. That's his question. Oh, but you're done. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you start, honestly. We only got a minute. It's uh, yeah. time's running out. No, no, it's a really, really good question. It's uh, euthanasia is antithetical to medicine. So euthanasia is not medicine. This, this is medical assistance in dying is a, is a, is a joke. This, this is a euphemism uh, that's tremendously clever. It, it's confusing. Um, the Canadian uh, Centre for Bioethical Reform, CCBR, uh, they're here in Alberta, but, but nationwide. They've just put out a book. It's very thin, which I like that. No pictures, which would have been a good idea, but very thin book. It's called A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide. This is uh, by Jonathan Van Maren and Blaise Elaine. This is a fantastic book. This is a great book for the, for the layperson to kind of negotiate this particular area. And how they frame this brilliantly is in the, in the area of suicide prevention. So in brief, what is it about this particular person that we would save this person from suicide? We want to prevent this death. And what is it about this person that would help encourage that death? And, so, and what is it? What's going on there? And actually, we should never be encouraging this one. We should always be preventing the, the death. It's an outstanding resource. It's available. It's very inexpensive. And I highly recommend that to begin that, that particular conversation. Thank you. Could we all give a, a round of applause? Our time is up for the panel members. All right.